in my preaching, um, in my interactions with people, am I doing more cutting down of jungles or irrigating of deserts? Uh, how do I think of a person who is entering the sanctuary? And it, it sort of struck me that I could do better as a pastor in giving more of that positive vision of, of Christianity, of life in Christ, of our Reformed identity, instead of often speaking against things that we're not. Um, so creating, in doing so, more of a negative identity. Welcome to Reformed Podmatics, a weekly podcast hosted by Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. In each episode, we strive to apply Reformed theology to life and ministry in the 21st century. Thanks for joining us for this week's conversation. Hello and welcome back to Reformed Podmatics. I am Pastor Zach. And I'm Pastor Mark. And today we are doing a conversation that is largely based on a book that we've been reading. Uh, Pastor Mark and I are a part of a, of a reading group with other pastors in our area where every other month or so we set about to read a book. And this current month's book is The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis. Of course, C.S. Lewis is the author of a great many books, uh, some fiction, many of them not. The Abolition of Man of all of his books is one of the lesser known, mm-hmm. but it's it definitely is one that, for those who like it, there is a, a genuine love. And if, I think if the book could be summarized in one sentence, it would be about the ways in which education actually forms our morality and our understanding of what it means to live in this world um, as moral beings. Uh, I, I think in in some ways the book is a critique of modern education mm-hmm. and how modern education, at least in Lewis's day, though I think that there are many great similarities and parallels to our own day, how mo- modern education can teach kids maybe without even really knowing it, a certain form of postmodernism. Uh, and so the book, it's, it's something that's hard to summarize, but uh, one of the main aims is teaching students to have strong morality mm. and to realize that there is such a thing as an objective morality and there is such a thing as beauty uh, and, and goodness in the world and we shouldn't just disregard that and act like it doesn't uh, actually exist. And so in the opening chapter of the book, which there are only three chapters Mm -hmm. in the abolition of man, uh, the opening chapter is the one where we find this fascinating quote uh, that is really kind of influencing and inspiring our thinking for this entire episode. And the quote is simply this, the task of the modern educator is not to cut down jungles, but to irrigate deserts. Yeah, when I was reading the book uh, recently, that quote jumped off the page to me. Um, I really love C.S. Lewis's style. And uh, you know that as you're reading, you can just tell there's so much beneath each of these sentences that he's crafted each one, thought very deeply philosophically about the ideas that he's presenting. And um, that was one that I thought is is definitely worthy of further consideration. So uh, the task of modern modern educators is not to cut down jungles, but to irrigate deserts. And it's set in the context of C.S. Lewis reacting very strongly to 
an example that was given in an English literature textbook um, and just explaining the story a little bit. Uh, the textbook um, presented uh, different descriptions of a waterfall. And so uh, one of the descriptions was was kind of mundane that uh, it was it was pretty or it was great or something, mm-hmm. using words that aren't as um, expressive of the waterfall. And then Samuel Taylor Coleridge describes a waterfall, I think at some point, uh, as sublime. Mm. And so the, the authors of the textbook were saying, they were, they were making the argument that Coleridge was actually not right or better in any way to describe the waterfall as sublime because that's just a matter of his interpretation. That's... Uh, this is sort of proto-postmodernism in a lot of ways, right. where uh, the waterfall in and of itself doesn't have any value or, um, or aesthetic, or yeah, objective qualities. Yeah. Um, but that's just what Samuel Taylor Coleridge feels about the waterfall. So um, Lewis, this really set him off. Uh, you could mm-hmm. tell uh, throughout the whole first um, first chapter, he was very dis- uh, uh opposed to that approach to not just English literature, but reality. Um, and so he, hmm. he at towards the end of that chapter, goes on to say, um, we don't need to be throwing cold water onto young people's creativity with mm-hmm. those kinds of, of ideas and teachings that are, not only are they false, but, um, but they're destructive in their falseness. And, and so... Um, he, he's wanting educators who are reading this book. I think he's actually giving a lecture at the time. Yeah, it's actually um, the, the book, The Abolition of Man, on is, is based, it's the sort of amalgamation of letters. It's or different lectures that he wrote yeah. and then it turned into a book. Yeah. So so he's saying to to those people who are listening, um, the, the task of an educator is to inspire, not to mm-hmm. discourage Um uh, there, I'm reading the fuller context of that quote. He said, for every one student who we need to sort of check the enthusiasm a little bit, mm-hmm. there are going to be a multitude of students who just have no desire, no uh, vigor, no, no yeah. interest in the world. To they go may and- see the waterfall and say, who cares? It's just water falling off of a cliff. No big deal. Right. And, and so Lewis comes along to say, it's not that we're cutting down jungles as though each student comes in and their mind is so fertile that things are just growing out of control. No, for the vast majority of students, they, they come into a classroom more like a desert and to uh, to water, to cultivate, to encourage growth that the students will see the true, the good, and the beautiful. That's really the task of the educator, no matter if, what subject you're teaching. Yeah, so Lewis is taking umbrage with what he sees to be a certain sort of uh, philosophical worldview that's seeping in through mm-hmm. uh, what on the cover appears to be a book about English literature and grammar. And so he says that kids think that they're learning grammar, but what they're l- really learning is to cut off uh, that part of them that tells them that certain things are very good or are very bad. Uh, and so in many ways, it reminds me of uh, Immanuel Kant, the great enlightenment philosopher who sort of posited a sharp difference between reality as it is out there and reality as we happen to perceive it in our minds and basically cut us off from experiencing reality and basically tried to argue through 
extremely uh, precise philosophical means that reality is really kind of literally a figment of our imaginations. And so we, we shouldn't really worry too much about reality as it, as it is out there. Uh, we just need to realize that we, we all have our own opinions on things. And so you can see how this is very much uh, like the postmodernism that we are swimming in. Mm-hmm. Lewis was swimming in it. Postmodernism is really kicking into high gear in the 40s with, while this book was written and then throughout the rest of the 20th century. And so this quote has given us, uh, I think, moment for pause, an opportunity to sit and to think about how this idea of not cutting down jungles but irrigating deserts may actually speak to our ministry context as pastors in our local congregation and also in the Christian Reformed Church in general. Yeah, it, what struck me in in reading that that quote was, do I occasionally um, hmm. uh, fall into this trap of uh, doing more weeding than watering? And I believe it was my second or third sermon at at Ammon Valley, our church that I'm at now, uh, was it, that's the illustration that I used. It was borrowed from one of my seminary professors, John Cooper, who would say, when you're in an apologetic scenario, you have to weed what is kind of against the Christian faith. You have to water um, and, and give a positive account for reasons to believe in the Christian faith. And so that that's the Christian life in a lot of ways as well. Yeah. Um, the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 talks about um, looking to Christ and uh, putting on compassion and love and yeah. so forth. Taking off other and, things. Exactly. You, you get rid of um, all of what is what is sinful, what is pulling you down, you put on Christ. And, um, and so I, I was thinking in my preaching, um, in my interactions with people, am I doing more, more cutting down of jungles or irrigating of deserts? Uh, how do I think of a person who is entering the sanctuary? Um, and it, it sort of struck me that I could do better as a pastor in giving more of that positive vision of of Christianity, of life in Christ, of the, our Reformed identity, um, instead of kind of uh, always speaking, not always, but, but often speaking against things mm. that we're not, um, so creating, in doing so, more of a negative identity. And I think that's actually what C.S. Lewis is really trying to guard his readers against, is not just mm. that the idea of postmodernism in general is a destructive philosophy, but this particular point that postmodernism attacks, which is things in the world are truly good mm-hmm. um, and have real value, have real beauty, and to, to find those things, and it stirs your soul to see a waterfall, to write about it, to create art, to experience mm-hmm. the world. Um, that could also be applied to how I think a sermon should be written that um, hmm. there's so much good in the world because of Christ. This is very Bavinkian, I think, to, <laughs> yeah. to talk in this way, that the in- Bavink talks about the incarnation as being so important because it's where God united himself to his creation in a new way. Yeah, um, and, and it fundamentally says that creation is good and is being transformed and renewed. Right, and so um, it really matches up well with what 
with what Lewis is trying to say, that there is real good in the world. There's real beauty. There's, there's truth in the world that should be sought out, um, discovered. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of an adventurous philosophy mm-hmm. that he's encouraging instead of the nihilistic, defeatist, um, unsettled philosophy that results from not being able to call a waterfall yeah. an actually beautiful thing. It's a cold, heartless sort of worldview to, to look at a grand waterfall. I imagine when I think of a waterfall, for example, uh, the different waterfalls in Yosemite. Mm-hmm. And you can stand in the middle of the Yosemite Valley and look and see different waterfalls and you can't help but be captivated by the grandeur of God's creation. And there is something profoundly soul-stirring about th- that just standing there and watching the waterfalls come down. It's no wonder that a lot of John Muir's writings about Yosemite almost sound mm-hmm. like he's groping in the dark towards some sort of religious uh, poetry because for him it was a religious experience. I don't think uh, John Muir was a Christian, as no. far as I know. He could have been. I could be wrong. Um, but it sounds like for him, his church was the cathedral of yeah. nature. Yeah. But there is something to nature. The Romantics knew it, and I think that they were, in some ways, very much onto something. And then in the 20th century, there was this cold, dry, heartless way of looking at the world, which Lewis is taking umbrage with in this book, The Abolition of Man, that is not allowing young people in particular to have that kind of joy or to express that kind of joy, but just to, to think, I only think this waterfall is subliminal. It's not actually subliminal. And anyone who does think it's subliminal, that's just their own personal perspective, their own opinion on these things. And mm. so it, he was saying it was cutting out their chests. It was cutting out their their heart, uh, their emotion, the, the, the part of the human being that attaches the mind to the appetites, so the, and so the stomach and the head. So that's why the chapter is called Men Without Chests, uh, which I think is very, very mm. thoughtful. And there's a lot more that could be said there. But how do we do this in teaching and preaching? I think in, in, in many ways in the Reformed world, uh, it, it's very easy work to cut down uh, things that uh, we don't like. It's very easy work to cut down ministries or uh, sort of well-known pastors or things like the Gospel Coalition uh, or even our own yeah, banner magazine or yeah. yeah denominational things. We can make our whole ministry about cutting things down and just essentially thinly veiling our our whining and our uh, our anger through uh, seemingly theological or biblical messages or sermons or youth group talks or whatever <laughs> it may be. Uh, and I I don't think that that's helpful. And I think part of our podcast here has been, we've been trying to, uh, to build something positive. Mm -hmm. Yes. Negative things can come in. There's a time to, uh, to critique things and to counteract things and to push against things. Uh, but we must be positive builders. And I think a lot of times it's, it's just too easy to take cheap shots again and again and again to build your, your ministry or your status without, actually trying to form and disciple and and water the deserts as lewis would say uh, by mm-hmm. giving the the flock a good meal from from scripture and so yeah that, there's a lot of things that come to mind here maybe we can riff on a few more yeah yeah uh, well i think of the person who comes to church and 
I realized this a lot during my sabbatical, how um, you might say dried up that person might feel entering into the church on a Sunday. Um, and, and and that's partly why the quote struck me, that that a person is could be coming into church with all these ideas and um, some of them need to be cut away a little bit. Yeah. And, and that could be part of the purpose of a sermon. Mm-hmm. But... Um, if Lewis's ratio is accurate, it's more likely that somebody is coming into into worship needing to be irrigated. You know, uh, mm-hmm. of course, Jesus tells us he's the living water, and um, he, he tells that to the woman at the well who is uh, distraught. She's there in the middle of the day because she can't be around other people, and she's sort of a pariah in the community. And so, it, you know, drink the water that I give you. You know, he, he mm-hmm. he's giving her life. And, and it, it strikes me in, in how I, really since have been thinking about this, uh, how I write sermons, uh, I've tried to look at my sermons and say, am I doing mostly weeding here, chopping down jungles, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or am I, am I doing some irrigating too and pointing people to the truth of Christ, uh, the beauty of a life in Christ, the, um, the goodness of the Christian life and uh, following Jesus today. Um, what I found since I've been paying more attention to that is um, people respond very positively to that type of encouraging sermon presenting for them a vision of what life could be um, in Christ. Uh, and that that's not necessarily the best way to evaluate a sermon is if I hear positive feedback, but um, I have noticed that uh, I can tell sometimes when people are, are really locked in, um, you could just feel that as a public speaker. And then yeah. I can tell at times when people aren't listening as closely. Um, and, and so I, I've sensed that when, when a text captures, um, this positive vision, uh, this irrigating of a desert, uh, that, that people are, are really thirsty for that mm-hmm. to, to stay with the metaphor, I guess. Um, and so I, I suppose, um, maybe an application for the average listener is, are you seeking out those voices who irrigate deserts and don't just chop everything down? Hmm. Um, because whether it's political commentary or preaching um, or just even in conversation, it can be very easy to focus on the negative um, without hmm. really pointing to uh, something that's beautiful, something that's good that's happening in the world or in your life. Um and, and that's life-giving. I mean, that's the nature of it. Yeah. So um, I've, I've had to do some adjustment, I would say, even in my own mind um, and in conversation. I've tried this a little bit more, turning things in a positive direction, and especially in my preaching, want to be making sure that those who come into church dry are going to be encouraged. They're going to be, um, you know, metaphorically watered, you might say. Yeah. I... I... I think there's also some wisdom in this quote from Lewis to see even where there is something to to cut, there is a, a jungle that needs to be trimmed mm-hmm. maybe, to see that at least this person has good intentions. And so one thing we talk about a lot on this podcast, a sort of perennial theme, is how often many conservatives uh, will get really stuck up in politics and will probably consume far too many hours each week of political commentary that really uh, sort of 
gets them enraged and they, they feel good about their rage because they're they have problems with the world and that is something to critique but at the same time I don't want to so much completely just chop down that forest. I, I think mm-hmm. that there is something to be retrieved there that often people are really politically engaged because there is at least a nugget, if not more than a nugget of goodness, of good motivation for yeah. wanting to see the world impacted in a positive way. A desire for justice, and, and for so example. I don't, yeah. yeah, I don't yeah. just want to knock people down uh, as a pastor all the time, but I do want to correct and to point and to show them that Yes, politics has its place, and other other things that you're into may have their place, um, but we have to relate all things to Christ and see things through uh, the eyes of the Word of God first and foremost. And and so I don't want to just chop down that jungle entirely yeah. as if it's all bad, but I want to be able to see that there there's something good to it. But what I want to do is irrigate those parts of a person's heart that maybe aren't as excited as they could be and should be about the things of God. And so I think a lot of being a minister, and I think about this often with the students that I work with in particular, I don't just want to tell them what they should be doing. I want to model what they should be doing myself, and I want them. I want to express to them how good these things are. Mm. I want to try to convince them of how good it is to follow Jesus. Just last night at youth group, we finished a series for the semester by talking about the lordship of Christ and what that really means for us. And so I sort of went the Dietrich Bonhoeffer cost of discipleship route. The famous quote from Bonhoeffer in that book is, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And so my my goal in the message was to show them that, yeah, following Christ will cost you everything, but it will be so good. It is so good. Even if you die, like Bonhoeffer died, a martyr for the sake of Christ, uh, he he did so being blessed by the Lord, I think. Uh, I think that Bonhoeffer knew that following the Lord was worth it and his life was worth it. So was he blessed in an earthly way? No. But was he a joyful man with a certain hope, a a certain settled hope? Yes, I think he was. And I think for the, the plethora of martyrs throughout church history who have died uh, for Christ, they would not say that they were given the short end of the stick. They were given something good mm-hmm. and they were given something that was worth dying for. And so that's what Jesus says, right? Pick up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. Uh, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Mm. If you want to save your life, then lose it, lose it for the sake of the gospel. And this is good. And so maybe there there's times to tell people, how the gospel has been good for you. Not just to try to convince them and say that it's good, but give them reasons why it's good. Uh, Convince not only their minds, but their hearts as well. I think that's part of how we can irrigate deserts. Yeah, and this is another example of where the word of God is proved to be living and active because there are those people whose lives are, you know, fertile and growing and they do need some, some, refining and uh, some gardening, some weeding to happen. But there are so many others who would need that. They're like a desert that needs to be irrigated. And so the word of God being living and active can distinguish Hmm. between the two actually. And, uh, and it's, it's partly our role as pastors to 
uh, to work towards that distinguishing and to make clear which person is which and to help people see signs of which needs to be happening a little bit more in their life. Is it more weeding or is it more watering? But um, God's word will accomplish what it's sent out to do in that it will encourage the, the person who is dried up but it will also challenge the person who is um, is in need of some challenging. And so that's a, that quote that you just said from Jesus himself perfectly illustrates that, how yeah. um, anyone who loses his life for my sake will find it, will, will save it. Well, that challenges the, the person who's sort of the proverbial jungle because you're called to lay down your life and to give something up that you might love, that, that you love too much. Um, for my sake, so that you might find a better life. But it also um, encourages that person who's dried up and doesn't know what to do, find life in Christ. You'll find it hmm. when you when you trust in him. So um, again, that, that's just a perfect example of how God's word is, is active and, and making, this is, sounds a little strange, that's but making different applications to different people with the same passage. Um, yeah. and, uh, and, and how that's a good thing. And, and to me, somebody would say, well, that sounds a little bit postmodern, doesn't it? <laughs> that sounds like, uh, the, uh, the person just sort of takes from it, whatever they, they hear from the passage, you know, it's the famous scenario mm-hmm. where you sit down for a Bible study and, and read the passage and the evangelical question is asked, now, what does this passage mean to you? That's, that's not what I'm getting <laughs> at here. That's, um, called a reader response hermeneutic yeah um but but actually the word is accomplishing what it's set out to do for those different people um and the word is is good and it's true it's equally true for both Hmm. and um and and it will lead both to christ and to trust more fully in the word as objectively true and helpful so um it it really does um break down postmodernism instead of you know some people would say it seems to confirm it by saying it's going to do something different in these different people. No, it's actually the objectivity of it and the truth of it that will yield these, what is ultimately the same result in the different people pulling them towards Jesus. Yeah, some of this just reminds me of the distinction between the law and the gospel. In some ways, mm, yeah, this conversation much. runs parallel to, yep. to that. Uh, the law being what cuts us down and the gospel being what irrigates um, but in some ways, there there's overlap between law and gospel. For the gospel, there is the obedience of faith, Romans chapter one, I believe, verse five. And then for the gospel, or for the law, there's there's a sense in which the law is good news for us. And this yeah. is what the this is one of the reformed distinctives, I think, in contradistinction to the Lutheran faith, is that we see in the in God's giving of the law, He's giving us a good gift. Uh, it's not just this horror that that uh, terrifies us constantly. In some sense it does, but it also reveals to us God's character and it reveals to us who Christ is and it reveals to us where we need Christ to to fix and to shape and help us uh, and to give us grace. And so, yeah, I'm just thinking of this sort of overlap mm-hmm. here between, yep. between all of this. But I think maybe one final direction to take all of this conversation about positive ministry versus negative ministry is to think a little bit more deeply together about the Christian Reformed Church uh, and this sort of state of affairs here. Um, I, I, 
I think that in our current situation, it just seems to me that it will be all too easy in the months ahead as we approach Senate 2024 uh, to really get into the negative ministry and to almost forget the the real ministry that has to happen in our pews with real people, mm. not just virtual people that we're interacting with online, whose blogs we're reading, or uh, all the discussions that are taking place, particularly on different CRC forums like Voices or the pastor's page on Facebook. It'll be really easy for us to just get up in arms and negative and just try to teach people around us what we should not be as the CRC. Mm-hmm. But I'm far more interested in the conversation of what we ought to be as the CRC. Uh, and those are those conversations are happening, but those are conversations I find far more fascinating yeah. than the ones that are just constantly about what we shouldn't be. But I, I think personally, my suspicion is that uh, should Synod 2024, this is again putting my Nostradamus hat on here, <laughs> should Synod 2024 go in a way that I would find personally pleasing, because I think that it would be uh, in accordance with God's word, one fear that I have is that we'll kind of be wondering, okay, now what? Yeah, Between yeah. all of us who were unified on that on that particular point, on human sexuality, what else unifies us? Uh, that's going to be a, a conversation I think we'll need to have. Yeah. Uh, I think there is a lot that unifies us, of course, uh, but it does seem like to me that there there is some differences of opinions on many other weighty things. And so I'm, I'm really curious to see uh, those conversations taking place in the next eight months or so. Yeah, if we don't, irrigate Six deserts <laughs> if, if we don't um, build a positive concept of reformed identity Christian identity as well um, then as we do the pruning and the cutting down of jungles mm-hmm. then what what is replaced by that is going to be a hundred different things yeah. And so, um, for example, I mean, we've already mentioned politics a little bit. Um, there, there are there are many people, I'm sure, in in our pews and in every in every church in the Christian Reformed Church that um, that that hear this almost through a political lens or a cultural lens to say uh, when I mention something about sexual sin from the pulpit or greed or um, or something along those lines, they would they would so that that's cutting something back. They would pretty instinctively replace that with, and we better vote the right way to, mm. to fix this problem in our culture. Yeah. Um, or we better, uh, you know, uh, um, figure out some magic bullet that, that will mm. like fix this. Um, that is maybe not even all that Christian. Um, yeah. I, you know, um, could go pretty far down that rabbit hole of what that could look like. But, um, the point here being, if we're not presenting a positive vision of a reformed Christian identity, there's going to be uh, other. <laughs> it's like the the heads of the hydra, you know. The, yeah. It just comes back in in a different way, in a different form, and it's just as destructive um, if it's not in Christ as the error of a teaching that would that would try to convince people that. Two man, two men can be married, and that would be pleasing in God's sight. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if if we fix that that issue, so to speak, without presenting a positive view of sexuality, yeah, it's it's just going to go in a in a in a different kind of bad direction. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, especially in the pew, my sense is that many conservative people 
probably do just don't they just don't like homosexuality they find it uh morally repugnant and they and they're against it because of that and that's not all that there is to say the reason to be against it is because the alternative is truly good and yeah. beautiful yeah. and god glorifying and so we need to do some deep thinking and i think the hsr was good in this yeah it was uh for teaching a, a broader holistic view of human sexuality and so we need to keep that at the forefront of our mind and not just become the denomination on a rampage trying to clear house against this view that we don't like if we're just a denomination built around a view that we commonly don't like that's <laughs> not much of a denomination at all yeah um great point and um if you want to check out the podcast of some guys who are trying to do this uh there's a new one out there called yeah. the three forms by tyler Wagonmaker and lloyd hemstreet that just started with episode zero uh <laughs> which I, I i appreciate that uh creativity um with as they just introduced themselves check out that podcast pat two pastors moving towards this positive vision um irrigating deserts especially in terms of confessional teaching in the christian reformed church so um hopefully that's happening at your church hopefully we can participate in that and that's what i want this podcast to be about is um not certainly not we're not a discernment podcast. Yeah, the discernment blogging yeah. is not what we Dis are Discernment up to. blogs, maybe for those who don't do a lot of blogging, are just these blogs that find, it's like the cancel culture of the theological conservative movement. Like, just find people to cancel, find people who are wrong, um, mm -hmm. discern it away, you know, cut it off. Mm -hmm. um, that's not the intention of this podcast at all. Uh, but we want to build something. Uh, we want to point people to um, not just kind of a homogenized evangelical version of Christianity, but to, to help you see the goodness, the beauty, the truth, the power of great reformed teaching and, um, and how God has, uh, has sovereignty over every part of our lives. So yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that gives us much for thinking about our future of does. our podcast, yep. how we can be working to be even more consciously positive in our approach than negative. Um, this isn't to say, we, we say we're not discernment bloggers. We've done our fair bit of critiquing <laughs> things we, we aren't fans of. Sure. But our hope in all of this is to is to build uh, something stronger in its place. And so that is our constant challenge, and we hope to continue doing that in the weeks and months ahead. But for this week, thank you again for tuning in, and we look forward to being with you next week. Absolutely. Grace and peace, guys. 